you are talking to a man that has, has, has had body parts removed. You know, I've had half my lungs removed and burnt out on a crack pipe. I've had veins stripped out of my legs. I've got more skeletal tissue than I, I, care, I care to remember. And you've got to understand that all of that is as a consequence of the life. Did I choose it? Well, on some level, yes. I didn't choose the outcome. Gone on too much, or you want no, to? No, there's no problem. Or do we just make it like a conversation? There's, it's just, it is a conversation. Right, that's fine. It may be a conversation where I don't speak as much as you, but that's fine. Guaranteed. <laughs> That'll be like every conversation I've ever had. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Today we're getting better acquainted with Radcliffe. Hello Radcliffe. Hello. Hello Dave. It's an unusual name. Well it is unusual and actually it means, literally, comes from the Anglo-Saxon, he who lives on the edge of a cliff. Really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> quite apt. But um, as a child growing up, you can imagine, it's quite a handful, Radcliffe. I had um, brothers and sisters and they have perfectly normal names and we'd go to those sort of family parties. And I never forget a Mrs. Barkus walking us in, and you know we arrived, and she took everyone, took us all kids through to the playroom, and sort of introduced us, you know, and said, "Oh, hi, everybody! You know, this is James, and this is Sophie, and this is Radcliffe." And everyone sort of looks up at Radcliffe because it's a bit unusual, and she could see I was really embarrassed. And she sort of rather sweetly said, "Do you have another name?" And I said, "Yes, Percy." <laughs> at which point, of course, I just want the floor to open up, swallow me up. So it took some getting used to, yeah, uh, to grow into as a name. But I'm tall, so I get away with it. Now. You, you are, you are tall. The first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? How do I know you? Not as intimately as some, I'm sure. <laughs> True. I met you at uh, through Spark London. In fact, That's right. A storytelling event run on a monthly basis where just everyday people get asked to or get invited to come and tell a story. Uh, to a live audience, and I met you at that. Yeah, and right. then we've kind of spoken a bit before, and then you asked me to get involved with uh, Stand Up Tragedy, which I was very happy to do, and then you asked me to come do this, and obviously I'm your your new best friend and hobby. Right. <laughs> We're very happy with that. Well, I think that you have a fantastically interesting story to tell, and uh, you tell it very well, as I've said to you. You flatter me, I, I do. Don't stop <laughs> I do, but it's true. And so the second question that I ask everybody is, what do you do now? I do a combination of things. And you're probably asking, how, how do I fill that awkward gap between school and retirement? I, I write uh, and I work with, uh, I have two writing partners and we're working on uh, some dramatic projects. And I write stories. I get booked as a storyteller, which has just started to take up. And my next sort of official gig, if you like, is as a storyteller for a launch of a jewellery brand in a very large department store in London, who have asked me to come along and tell children's stories. Oh, nice. To children, which is a really nice gig. And uh, if you don't tell them, nor will I. <laughs> they think I'm entirely suitable. But they like my dulcet tones, and um, I, can, uh, hold some, I can hold people's attention just long enough, I hope. 
uh, for them to listen. And I also, I have a small interest in a business that raises money for fund managers, which is sort of the last vestiges of my old life. I was very ill, I had a stroke about a year ago, and a very scary time, obviously. And I decided then, obviously this is radio, so uh, people will find it hard to believe that I'm now 50. Obviously, in, in a good light, I look mid to late 30s, I like to think. That's in the evening, of course. But in daylight, I am 50. And I thought, if I don't do this now, I never will. Yeah. So I thought, the kids are a bit more grown up. I'm less, you know, I'm in, in a better position where I can sort of take a risk and take some time to develop to do what I love doing, which is yeah, telling stories and, and writing them and creating characters. And I really enjoy it. Well, I, yeah, I mean, and I think that in, that's half the trick is if you're enjoying it, that comes across in the way that you communicate it and then it, it kind of becomes electrifying, I think. Well, I, yeah, well, I'm with you on that. And I mean, and I, you know, we met in a, in a forum where, where that's the reason to be there. And, you know, the, and we've had this conversation before, but you can go and listen to all famous people. You can go and watch famous people. All these people have paid hundreds of thousands of dollars or pounds to appear in or, or, or do something. Um, and every one of them is usually telling the story of, of, of an average Joe, somebody just like me, who, you know, it's a normal person's world. But nobody would, would hear that story unless George Clooney was telling it or Brad Pitt's telling it. Yeah. But in fact... Well, in the, in the sort of spark tradition that I know, everyday people, everyone has a story to tell. Some people tell them really well, some of them are very funny, some of them are very touching. But all of them I find totally engaging. And that's what I'm interested in, what shaped me and made me who I am. Obviously, as a father, want to help shape my children's world that they come into and that they inherit. I've done absolutely nothing of any note in my life whatsoever. But I have done it spectacularly. Well, you've done a lot of... Yeah, I mean, it depends what you mean by note, doesn't it? I mean, if you mean that everybody knows about, then maybe not. But uh, that your life it, it has been one of events. Uh, Things have happened. Yes. Well, Dave, you're not wrong. There's been there have been colourful episodes, <laughs> um, and my a lot of my motivations in life were were fueled by the dark side. And I used to uh, I used to have a mantra, which was. Something along the lines of live fast, die pretty. And then that would be closely followed by only the good die young. I'm going to live forever. Um, <laughs> as I explored the dark side. I guess had I been born 200 years ago, I would, have, I would have been described as a libertine. And yes, a lot of my experience and a lot of the stories I tell are, well, shall we say, <clears throat> they explore and examine the, the true nature of decadence. <laughs> they do. It's a genteel way of putting it. How average a Joe are you, though? What was your, like, originally, because you've got quite a posh voice. This leads me to suspect that you're <laughs> not, <laughs> yeah. not the most average of average Joes. Well, yeah, there's average. And there's, there's average and there's, there's average. average. And there's average. Uh, I'm average with a capital A, obviously. <laughs> no, I, I come from uh, what I suppose traditionally is called a privileged background. Mm -hmm. I've managed to overcome <laughs> overcome a lot of those advantages. And yes, as, as you are, are already aware, but other people aren't, having grown up in a sort of big house in the country and, and being a very sort of you know, hunting, fishing, shooting sort of background in Northumberland, I was sent off to boarding school, as most people of my ilk are. 
and uh, I managed to uh, I managed to last till about I think the age of fifteen when I they finally drew a line under my formal public school education. I then was dispatched to Edinburgh to a sixth form college of no repute where to, I had to complete my A levels and. My first week in Edinburgh, uh, all I can really remember is meeting people who I thought were very different to me, and they were. They didn't have any of my background, they didn't have any of my common ground, and I loved them because of that and despite that. The fact that most of them were involved in the pharmaceutical industry in one form or another was certainly an added appeal. So I kind of, I did turn up to college once or twice and I did sit the exams but I was not interested in any formal education. At that point you kind of checked out of mainstream society would you yeah, say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my first night, no it wasn't my first night, I think it was my second, my first night in Edinburgh I went off to meet my at the time girlfriend, young Rose, lovely girl, obviously with a view to a bit of you know low budget pizza and a bit of artful wooing and um, I was living in Diggs, up in uh, Craig and Tinney, which is a, they call it a suburb in Scotland, uh, anywhere else it would be called an armpit, but it was uh, not the best place in the world. But the most wonderful people, Maggie uh, Souter was my landlady, who was married to uh, an Italian taxi driver who was never there, and she was uh, this sort of dizzy, blonde, wildly um, fun-seeking, lonely Scottish woman who was converting to Islam, which I found fascinating, and who um, hit me with a preemptive strike with a gin bottle, early doors, and I never really looked back. And within two, I think it was my third day, I met a guy in a bar, and I met him by stint of the fact I was in the rough parts of town, I didn't know the difference between the nice parts and the rough parts of town, having been a new arrival. And someone with a crossbow came in, kicked open the doors, shot him with a crossbow bolt through the thigh, which then stuck into the chair. He stood up with a bellowing roar, still with the chair attached to the back of his leg, and proceeded to beat the living shit out of these guys, who then ran away. And I thought he was immensely impressive, and used my belt as a tourniquet on his leg and helped him pull the bolt. He then just pulled the bolt straight through his leg. Jesus. And uh, I helped him to his car to get him to hospital. And um, we became firm friends, actually. And he rang me up. It was a classic moment in my life. Seminal, probably. Uh, he rang me up a few days later, and he just said, uh, it was a Sunday morning, really early on a Sunday morning, he said, have you got an electric carving knife? Uh, what? He said, have you got an electric carving knife? Yeah, we do, actually. He said, great, come meet me at the garage. Okay, I said. And it was only halfway there, sort of walking through the, the morning mist of a late, I think it was a late September. And I thought, what am I doing walking around the streets of Edinburgh with an electric carving knife, going to meet a man who I know, oh, the only thing I know about this guy is he can pull a crossbow bolt through his leg with yeah. that picture. And even I thought, maybe. I'll, I'll. But I arrived at the designated uh, area, walked into this sort of warehouse, and there was a yacht that had been contained over from South Africa which had a false hull, made completely of Durban poison. It was a sort of uh, very strong grass of its day. And it was sort of two inch thick compressed sheets all around it, which they were prizing off the hull of this boat. And I was there with my electric garving knife and one or two other of his pals, 
carving this stuff up and putting it into black plastic bags. So I saw the biggest amount of dope I'd ever seen in my life in one place, in one room. The dust of which, within an hour, we were all giggling and gibbering <laughs> like idiots. And my first introduction into the uh, slightly more organised world, the chaotic drug world, was, uh, was firmly cemented. Yes, yeah, so that was yeah. You've got to remember, I was, a, I was a teen. It was you know we're talking the end of the seventies. Yeah. Punk rock had just happened. Pink uh, Floyd and the yeah. Wall. We don't need no education. I was a sort of classic product. I was a byproduct of a sort of the public school system. You know, renegade. You didn't want any part of it. Because at fifteen, when you left public school, yeah. you were expelled, weren't you? Is that right? Well, I came home <laughs> probably about a week, a year, and two weeks ahead of what the fee plan had suggested. Yes. They, they. I was withdrawn, and that was for with that was for uh, drugs, wasn't it? Or well, it was a combination of a story uh, about yeah. It. There was a sort of I had it quite well organised, to be honest, because the head boy was one of my customers, and so he would tip me off if the drug squad were coming around, and um, <laughs> which was quite useful. But he hadn't ticked, ticked off. There's a chap, a boy called Brian Smurthwaite, who'd also come. We'd go, we'd go off to London. The school I was at was in Buckingham, so we'd come back for a weekend, loaded up with bits and bobs. You've got to remember, punk rock was happening. The film If had come out, I think, by then. We'd all seen that. We are all sort of living this anarchic life. No one was interested in any, <laughs> any lessons at all. I'd got myself so ostracised from the main body of the school that I had to be inf- formally invited to lessons by then. And I'll never forget <laughs> my tutor, Dr Michael Waldman, um, sent me a really beautifully handcrafted invitation saying Dr Michael Waldman requests the pleasure of Radcliffe Royd's company uh, for a, a geology lecture at 9am on Wednesday the 17th or whatever it was. And I, I, met, I wrote back saying, Radcliffe Royd's thanks Dr Michael Waldman for his kind invitation. Very much regret he's otherwise <laughs> engaged. Um, I got beaten for that too. I used to get beaten a lot at school. I was, I was a handful because I, I was irreverent and I didn't, I didn't try. And I was annoying, one of those annoying students that I was just bright enough to get my exams without doing a stroke of work. Yeah, I, I, I was similar to that. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't bad, necessarily bad, badly behaved, but I, I was lucky that I could not do very much work and still get the grade. I didn't yeah, really they, revise exactly. for anything in my A-levels. And things. And like everyone goes, oh, no, no, you must revise, you must revise. Yeah. But I'd never revise for a thing in my life. I would just wing it. And the annoying thing for them was I got away with it. And the real, the, the sad part, I guess, is that I probably had some natural ability, which, and when I remember they discussed the idea of Oxbridge. Well, I'd spent ten years, what, nine years at that point in formal boarding school education. And the irony, funnily enough, still isn't lost to me, that my lot are basically sent off to boarding school at the age of seven or eight, whatever it is, ostensibly to go and learn how to be sort of ruthless, heartless bastards, to go and run an empire, which we no longer had. So it seemed to me that I was an anachronism from the start. And so I was outwardly, you know, pliable and calm and polite, quite charming even at times, I imagine. Uh, but inside, I was just, I was just Mr. Rebellion, fuck you. You know, I took the Robert Downey sort of view that you agree to everything and then just go and do your own thing anyway. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of what I did. And I was with a lot of kindred spirits in a campus school in, in, in the countryside, in the middle of Buckinghamshire. And what, you know, was, you know. what was the first... I mean, because as, as we go on, it'll become more, more clear to the, to the listeners why this is a relevant question, but what was the first drug that you took then? What was the first kind of... Because as I always ask people sort of what was their... What was the first thing that they you know what we, when do you, when was the first time you wrote or when was the blah 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 and yeah. it seems this is kind of a 
a, a pertinent question for the you. The first recreational drugs, I think. We yeah, that's them. fair. I think that's the that's the that's the technical term. Was what expenses you call drink a drug? Um, I do. If 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 alcohol were invented today, it would be a class A drug. Yeah, um, I think any anyone with any logical sense would see that the amount of damage and resources, public resources that go to fuel drunk and alcoholic excess, then then actually they would probably give a big tick to the heroin addicts who, who in comparison are a drop in the ocean. Yeah. I speak with some authority on the subject having been both uh, <laughs> alcoholic and heroin <laughs> So I'm allowed, I'm allowed to have an opinion on this. But I first drank, I was what they call a blackout alcoholic, well that's a technical term, I just thought I was a party animal that had a Memory, memory lapses, <laughs> but I can remember my. You know, I grew up at home. It's hard to describe this, but growing up at home was it was confusing. My parents would sit and watch The Good Life, which was in the days when we had like two TV channels or three TV channels. Everybody watched the same program, um, and um, they used to watch The Good Life, and they used to sit in the morning room, which was confusing because they never used it in the evening. But they would sit in the morning room, and the, my mother would sort of do a sort of God Mornay and something, uh, which they'd eat on their laps in front of the telly quite often. And I would sit with them in school holidays and just sit on the sofa. And I'd feel so awkward and uncomfortable thinking, is this it? And it's rather sad looking back, but I mean, the only way I could see, that, well, the, the, there may have been other ways, but the only way I examined how to get through this was, oh, well, this is dull. So I'd go into my father's rather conveniently scaled industrial drinks cupboard which had a sort of it had a doorway into it it was a walk-in drinks cupboard and I'd go and get a glass and fill it full of gin big gentleman of course I'd put a drop of martini on the top and I'd bump that down and then just go and sit and watch telly with that corset through my veins that and that you know that made it okay and I remember coming down I must have been 13 13 maybe maybe 14, but I think 13, and I came downstairs and my father was just screaming, what the fuck are you on, boy? And, oh, whoa, 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 you know, I'm sort of, whoa. My mother was at her sort of default position by the sink doing the washing up. As long as the plates are clean, all will be well. And I'm sort of totally bemused. Anyway, he stormed off in a bank and went off to work. And I sort of looked at mum and said, what, what? And uh, she was sort of, uh, lip trembling, saying, oh my God, darling. She said, I don't know what's wrong with you. She said, we were sitting watching The Good Life. And you suddenly just got up, took all your clothes off, stood on the coffee table and beat into the fireplace. Oh, God. Sorry to laugh. No, well, uh, apparently it's normal. So I, and I I like to drink. And funnily enough, uh, (laughs) when I discovered dope, and just a hash, when I was 14, I really liked that because I could chill and have a few drinks and I didn't get out of control mm. that didn't stop me getting out of control at different times mm. um, I was a great one for I suppose my belief system was really that if, if one is good ten must be fantastic and you know what I've, I've yet to disprove that theory and was completely Dave completely drawn to the sort of the counterculture the you know Bob Marley, Pink Floyd, prog rock, hate my parents, hate athletics, didn't turn up to anything, you know, having a quick zoom in the woods before lessons totally worked for me. And I could just sit there quite happily in my own little world on a, on a pleasant mellow high 
And in my head, I wasn't harming anyone. You know, I'd come up with sort of odd remarks at different times. I probably appeared like someone with Tourette's because I just suddenly start trying to share a thought with people. So from the age of 14, I was a regular dope smoker. By 15, I discovered acid. And this is in the 70s when proper drugs were available. Um, and California Gold Stars were the, were the thing of choice. Um, we had, I was at a very smart school with lots of very rich people and I had a pal that kept a car hidden in the local town. We would drive down to London at night, go out to dinner. We even had a club called La Societe um, where we'd go for, to very smart London restaurants and um, have these sort of bullshit poncy dinners and get absolutely wasted and then drive back to London and then drive back from London to school. Nobody ever caught us, nobody ever knew what we were doing. You didn't smash up the clubs at the the, the restaurants. Well, funny enough, um, the car did eventually get done. Oh, right. Um, and uh, he did very... I luckily wasn't in it, but he smashed up the car Fuck. Um, in the middle of the night, took it off the, took it off the M40. Fuck. Well, it may not even be the M40 in those days, but... Uh, whatever the, the the quick road of the time up to Bucks, um, he smashed the car up, but that was after I'd left. Um, so yeah, I was um, I was destined to follow my own path. I remember my housemaster saying once that he would make me a prefect in my last year if if I conformed, and. Um, I rather arrogantly turned to him and said, I'd rather hoped I was already in my last year. <laughs> I was right, of course, because they chucked me out. I'll never forget him saying, the immortal line, you have natural leadership qualities, young man. People would follow you. Why do you insist on leading them up the garden path? And I didn't really have an answer for him. I just found the garden path a lot more interesting than the sort of the route map that they pegged out for me. And I think I was arrogant enough to, to believe that my way was better than anyone, any way that anyone else could show me, which was an immensely isolating place to be. It probably made me quite fun to be around because you were always going to get a challenge, whatever was going on. Mm. You know, I got, I got beaten a lot at school. And it is interesting, isn't it? That nowadays, if a middle-aged man took a young boy and bent him over a sofa and hit him with a stick, he'd probably get five years. Yeah. In those days, they probably got about five grand a term. Yeah, um, exactly. It was, culture, it was so across the culture. You've I mean, got, and, and I think one of the things that we don't allow for it in like is, 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 is the rolling nature of culture. And the, the culture that um, I grew up in and that you grew up in and the, and the, the culture that the next generation are growing up in they do have obviously common touching points, but they're very different worlds. Mm. And the access to information that people have today with internet and Twitter, and I mean, everyone, everyone can be completely in touch 24 seven. And I've sat, we've all done it, I've sat in rooms of friends. And in my day, a pal would ring up and say, hey, the Floyd have got a new album out, do you want to come round? And you'd go around, you'd smoke a few joints, a couple of bongs, and listen to a whole album and discuss it. Nowadays, people will just send you a link and they'll sit in the same room, not interacting with each other directly eye to eye, but through, through a motive of some sort, either through their phone or a laptop. Uh, it is bizarre. We get a lot more information very quickly. But I think we often, we forget, well, I think we forget to look behind 
the surface glamour of a, of a well-produced YouTube video, which is kind of where we're at today, because we're talking about what goes on behind the world that you meet. You know, When I walk into a room, what people see is the facade. What nobody sees is the history that you, you trade around, and yet every interaction that you and I will have will be shaped in some form or another by previous experience. And if we don't share that previous experience with each other, then all we're left with is the surface. No, that's true. That's really true. I mean, I have a my my personal problem tends to be I'm not very good at at having a facade when I go into a conversation. So I can put people off because I yeah. I'm, I'm, I meet them and if I'm in a bad mood, I'll be in a bad mood. Or I might start talking to them about sex or you know childhood experiences or something very very quickly, far too quickly for their. I know, but if you're buying a newspaper, like, you know, exactly, from the news exactly. Station, you don't want to be talking so, too well, much about sex. I mean, sex. I, exactly. So I try, I try to, I try not to have those kind of. Yeah. But you're, but you're absolutely right. But that what, what we're talking about there is is boundaries and. And where, where 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 somebody puts them, and what you share, and I think it's an interesting point. Is the reason that the we mentioned earlier that the spark fascinates me to be part of it, whether as you know actually performing or, or just in the audience, is that what you get is is a chance to meet well meet a, another human being, but also to meet and challenge your own preconceptions. Because when you walk into a room or I walk into a room, we judge. Mm. We assess, we put people in boxes. I do it, I'm sure everybody else does. You grey people, oh, interesting, yeah. not interested, yes, attractive, not attractive, oh, funky, cool, not cool, idiot, teenager, you know, grandmother, whatever. We, we attach a label and we, 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 we position the room or we, we, we route map it so that we know who, what and where we're talking to. But very often we forget that the person we see as a grandmother might also have been a survivor from Budapest who who walked out of yeah uh, who walked out of you know Hungary as the Germans walked in absolutely that's uh, and I've had that experience I've had the exquisite pleasure of listening to a lady talk of her story of what it was like to be a young girl coming home from school being swept off her feet by her family and on the run from then on away from the Germans but if I met that person walking down Oxford Street I'd just think. Oh, some old Billy getting in the way of all the shoppers who just wants to go and get, you know, a couple of Frankfurters for her tea. You well, know, and that, which is, that's my own limitation. everybody has... Age is kind of the ultimate, if you're talking about facades, yeah. age, age yeah. is kind of the ultimate facade. I've been writing a thing for Stand Up Tragedy um, that I'm going to do on Monday, um, and it's about my grandparents' lives. Right. And, and, and one of the lines in that is about my gran, you know... That, that, you know, she was always a kind of um, pantomime villain in some ways in my head. And yeah. I've had to, I've reassessed yeah. her as an old lady, as a person. But one of the lines I have in it is something like, you know, I'm not saying she's a nice person. Every every old person has hurt people in that. You know, we, you know, we, we yes. see an old, old person, we, we go, oh, you know, we're either annoyed by them, like you say, or we're like, we kind of make them into children, yeah. kind of cutesy, and children we make into children. Children are complicated, yeah. you know. We just put old people into this weird box, and I'm trying to find a way of kind of seeing my gran as a person and assessing her as a person without kind of forgiving forgiving her necessarily. But completely. I'm not that, saying I no, that, you know, what you're talking about is accepting accepting someone for all of someone for who they really yeah, are. Yeah, exactly. I loved it when you just said that line: "All old people have hurt someone." Yeah. And that's something that, because we think of our nan or grand, you know, we think of the, 
although the family unit in this country, or our culture, not so much the country, in, in, in a sort of Anglo-Saxon culture, is much less family-centric than perhaps some of the uh, Far Eastern cultures, where they revere, in China, much, they revere age much more. Mm. Whereas we tend to dismiss it. We're all galloping so fast to be grown-ups. And I wonder if there is actually ever an age at which we accept who we are. Because as a child, for me growing up, I desperately wanted to be a grown-up. Yeah. You know, I had an elder brother, and I was always competing with him. I knew I could never win, but I was always driven to compete. It's why I think communism doesn't work. It's because it takes away the one thing that is the, the biggest human driver, which is, is, is the desire to, to win. You know, that hunter-gatherer instinct. If everything's handed on a plate and everything's equal and fair, then we lose all, all edge, at least I think. Not that I'm here to talk about political doctrine. Um, I don't believe in politicians. I think we need civil servants, not politicians, personally. I mean, you had, in a way, no economic reason when you began your life to necessarily to to fight and to no. try to. No, I, I'm one of those rare people that probably well managed in my own and responsible with through inheritance and education probably. He'd never have worried about a damn thing in his life. But you've had to survive through your life. Um, well, as we touched as on earlier, I overcame those um, wonderful advantages of wealth and privilege and ended up homeless in the West End. As, and I know that we've discussed it before, but I... Uh, but I definitely, I definitely would like to, 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 to go there with this conversation. That's fine. But, but, but I mean, so... You, you catch me on the comeback tour. I'm very, yeah, very happy right. to talk about it. I mean, you. So it was a long way down. But but well, yeah. And I mean, and when you went, so we'd got kind of, we got to the the point where you're in you're in Edinburgh and you're meeting up with yes. these kind of or, or, rel- yeah, like kind of disorganised crime. Disorganised, lovely way of putting it. Mate. <laughs> you've got it. You've spotted. It was disorganised crime, and and it wasn't cynical, and it wasn't. It wasn't a sort of let's sit down and with breadheads working out, right, how can we do this, how can we do that? It was much more, and I, it is a justification, but it, it's only looking back that I see it as one. To me, it seemed a perfectly natural progression. As I never sold anything to anyone that didn't ask for it. So, therefore, the need was there in my head. And usually it was pals, you know, you're all meeting up with half a dozen of your mates, Oh, who's got some blow? Who's got some this? Who's got some that? Oh, well, uh, you know, so and so can sort them out. And so, yes, it it helped me ease into a world which I didn't really know people um, because I had something that everybody wanted. Well, that's what it felt like. Um, And I certainly wasn't immune to taking advantage of that. So I'm well aware that I would get asked to a lot of parties because, uh, one, um, I, I, I can enjoy a party, and two... I, I usually had the wherewithal for everybody else to enjoy the party too. So I, I got involved in the sort of... And I don't, I'm not comfortable with the term drug dealer. Um, I have dealt drugs, yes. I was not a drug dealer. I was someone that had access to drugs and was, 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 was perfectly willing to share. You were a drug, sh- a drug sharer? I was, yes, I, I was more of an equal opportunities. Um, <laughs> uh, it was more about sharing, as long as you had the cash, of course. Never forget the self-interest. But I was more interested not in making money, but in, in being able to just keep up and join in with. So it started at school, actually. My school was three miles from the nearest town. Nobody could be asked to go down to the local town to buy the fags. And there was a risk involved, because if you got caught, you were going to get chucked out. Blah, 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 blah. 
I, those sort of natural defences I never had. I was, I was fearless around stuff like that. I said, that's ridiculous. And I was very happy to go and make the effort to go there. And everyone would pay you a, you know, a little bit of vig on top to do that. So I would effectively smoke for free at school because I was prepared to put a little bit of effort in. Moving on, it was a natural progression to dope and uh, obviously as, as I grew up and I met more people. And this is where the dangerous bit becomes is because of the nature of if you're dealing with an illegal commodity and talking to people and it's all a little bit underhand, you're more likely to come across other illegal people and other illegal activities, yeah. which, which I did. That's and, the funny thing that people talk well, about yes. weed as a, a gateway drug, and it, it seems quite—it's quite interesting to me that, that in your story, the drugs that were your gateway were the legal ones. Yes, so it sounds like the first—the first. Absolutely, was, I'm glad you. Yeah, cigarettes and then alcohol, you know. And everyone's because my parents wanted to uh, to attach blame to someone or to something. I, I take full responsibility. I have regrets in my life, of course, we all do. Given the information that I have. Now, had I had it then, that wonderful benefit of hindsight, would I have done it differently? Probably not. And the reason probably not is these, you know, everyone has this sort of, or my perception is that people have this sort of, <gasps> oh, drugs, drugs. Well, I'm sorry. But you're also the same people that are quite happy to pop a bottle of champagne to celebrate your children's birth or your wedding or whatever. The, 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 the culture of using some form of mood-altering substance to enhance a situation is culturally ingrained and, and genetically almost imprinted in us as we've been making grain alcohol and what have you yeah. since the year dot. I think it's and across the all cultures as well. I mean, it's not yeah. even just... A, it's, it's, it's every culture's got every some culture. kind of thing that they do. Yeah. All we did was, 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 was aid the diversity mix, if you think about it, because what we did was we brought the sort of the culture of the uh, Indian and Arabic tribes uh, to London and um, some of the Golden Triangle Hill tribes of the, of the uh, Asian continent. Um, and we, you know... We made opium more available to a wider uh, appreciative audience. Uh, you know, and I know people sort of say, oh, with, you know, the evils of drugs. No, drugs and, and drink are not in themselves inherently evil. There are people who recognise that there's a way to make money out of supplying them. Is that any more morally reprehensible than a government that's prepared to tax the same commodity or the legal commodities? For, for, for a clip? No. I, I cannot see from a moral standpoint why putting £5 duty on a packet of cigarettes is any more morally defensible than a Charlie Big Potatoes Coke dealer in the East End chopping out, you know, bags of Coke. I, I don't see any difference. No, You're no. using other people's desire for a substance in order to make money. Now, if you argue that well, if it's levying a tax, it's for the greater good. Well, maybe so. But this government is the same... Uh, well, it's the same... You know, we've had a linear government for the last however many hundreds of years. It's the same one that sponsored the opium wars for, for tea. You know, the, the, the world of the commodity only works if the commodity is popular. Nobody can make the commodity popular. It either is or it isn't. Mm -hmm. People want it or they don't. Now, just because something is illegal an illegal jurisdiction in one country but not in another. Where does legality and morality cross over? I personally 
I'm probably a, a, a bit more relaxed about uh, legal definitions. But I'm also uh, totally defend my right, and did for years, my right to get fucked up, if that's what I wanted to do, to get high. And I see no... I get really cross, actually, when I hear drunk men in pubs talking about guys on speed thinking about that. You know. they hang on a minute. What yeah. is the difference? No, you're right. What is the difference? That's like arguing that people that drive Skodas are, are worse people than the people that drive uh, Volkswagens. They're just different flavour of the same thing. You're right. Sorry, I, we, I mean, I do agree. On that. No, I, no, no. I, 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 I can get on my soapbox. I do agree. And I think, and, and I think agreeing with that point doesn't make you pro or anti drugs. It just no, makes you. It's not about, it just it's, makes you realistic. It's about not. I was going to say, yeah. I have. Um, I, I am. A, that's my point. Is I think I just believe I'm a, a realist. I'm pragmatic. Yeah. And yes, I was opportunist enough to understand that. Well, okay, because something's illegal, people will pay you for taking the risk for them. Yeah. That's where. That's why I I could survive diddling around in the drug world but you I mean and but you but in the drug world you, you're there are winners and there are losers and you did not you were not a winner in the in not the drugs in any, not in any traditional in, sense in, in, Dave, no. I mean it depends what you mean absolutely actually. not although here I am today alive. exactly that's what so I was going to say I, yeah. I you know you are talking to a man that has, has, has had body parts removed you know I've had half my lungs removed and burnt out on a crack pipe I've had veins stripped out of my legs. I've got more skull tissue than I, I, care, I care to remember. And you've got to understand that all of that is as a consequence of the life that I... That, that I, I Did I choose it? Well, on some level, yes. I didn't choose the outcome. I choose the, the methodology. Is I, I made a very conscious decision that I wanted to use drugs. If I was going to continue to use drugs, I was going to have to find a way of, of funding what is an expensive hobby. Uh, the most expedient way to do that was to be involved in the distribution thereof, which I didn't see any moral question mark to mm. at all. You use the expression, did I win? No, quite manifestly not, because I got involved in very strong habit forming drugs I, I was and a you, heroin you, addict for you, 25 the, years the drug, drug dealers who win are the ones generally who don't make so like like don't use their own stuff yeah there's, there's, a, there's a great cliche and there's a reason yeah. it's a cliche because yeah. it's true you just don't get high on your own supply yeah. oh, the, the reality Dave is I was my own best customer yeah. and, and that meant that economically my whatever plan I laid was never going to last very long Mm-hmm. The the sad part of that is is that there comes for me looking back there was a time when my sort of drug use would interfere with my work life or my social life or my family life but there is a point at which and I was probably about 19 when I recognised that my thinking was that my work life my family life and my social life started to interfere with my drug use and the point there really was that at that point I could identify a crossover to where my main point of focus was actually my own burgeoning need to, to feed my own habit, which I didn't plan to have. I got it, and you have to learn to live with it. And actually, most of the people that I know that got fucked up on drugs long term would have relished a way of being able to get high without having to have the habit. But if you, you know, 
what is it they say? Oh, I don't even know, but there's, you know, there's, there's lots of fun to be had out of the drug world in, in being high. I'm not the only person that's listening to this that will have got high at some point or another. Some of you may even be high while you're listening. <laughs> Enjoy it as long as you can. I did. And I had to pay a huge price for it. And it was a price that in the end I wasn't willing to pay. And, you know, Dave, you know, you know where it took me. So, yeah, I mean, before, okay, I'm going to, could I have a cigarette? Uh, one of your cigarettes, your real cigarettes. Uh, uh, now, I just wanted to go on record that <laughs> I have not offered this cigarette. No. I, I have this cigarette. This is, this, is, this is exactly my point. Is all I am doing is, is, is freely sharing and answering <laughs> somebody else's need. Thank uh, you so much. That's my pleasure. So now this I is, will this go is the my... extra mile and light oh, it for you. Oh, thank you. I will light it for you. Right, now that... Am I, a, am I a moral deviant in letting you have that cigarette? No, I don't believe so. It's my choice, it's my responsibility. When, I, when, when you first said you were going to smoke, I said, I'm not currently smoking, yeah. which recognised that I will always be a smoker. <laughs> um, and after this conversation, I, I'm pretty certain that after this conversation about uh, the depth of uh, addiction, I will be able to not go out and buy another cigarette packet straight away. But we will see, maybe I won't. Because the, uh, well, these episodes come out yeah. unlinear, they don't come out in a linear fashion. Right. There's episodes where I'm smoking, there's episodes where I'm not. There's, and so there's, there's so not what so... What we're really here today, Tim, is we're here to discuss your struggle with your addiction. No, we're not, we're not. <laughs> Which is... Which is a, the but, only it, way you've got... Uh, it's a clever ploy, I've worked it out. Instead of going out to buy cigarettes, <laughs> you go and interview smokers. Every one of these people is a smoker. I guarantee it. No, yeah. well, a few, of them, a few of them smoke, but I, I don't always succumb. And in this case, I just... There's too much, too much thinking about... Uh, about nicotine uh, one, uh, early, earlier on when we were, but anyway never mind that this is my addiction I'm addicted to cigarettes I will hold my hand up and say it and um, I'm, I don't think I'm unusual in, in having a proclivity for, for addiction no and, 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 and that's the thing is, and it's a really interesting point because I mean all joking aside you know and I have been I've had physical habits to Valium a benzodiazepine, um, a 25-year physical habit to heroin. It's a very powerful opiate. Yeah. My predilection for crack cocaine is legendary, legion, legion. And the destruction that stuff uh, caused me, unbelievable. Were it the right forum, I, I, will, I would read you a poem I had to, or a letter I had to write to drugs when I was in a, a rehab facility once, which sums up my life poetically. Uh, in such a way that, um, well, it's interesting. I have never used a, a mood-altering drug since. I do still smoke, however. That is, for me, the most difficult one to break, and I've had periods where I've tried to stop, and I struggled with it. And I'm currently in an accepting my weaknesses phase where I don't battle with it, but I will, for practical health reasons, attempt stopping again. Yep. But I make, you know, I do make no bones. I mean, I am as addicted to cigarettes as ever I was to heroin. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've never been addicted to heroin, but I am, I am, I am you know, I, I'm very aware that whether I smoke for the rest of my life or not, there will always be this craving. Yeah. 
and well, that which is the, which is why I don't take anything now. I don't drink and I don't take any drugs now. I haven't done for several years. Yeah. And the reason for exactly that reason is that I know I will always have that there. Now I, I I take it. I look at it rather like the cancer view, which is that I'm in remission, and I have a belief that I would trigger it by the first one. So as long as I don't have the first one, yeah, I'm kind of ring fenced from the from the ones the inevitable ones that would follow and that as a philosophy seems to work quite well people talk about rock bottom uh, it's, it's just it's, so they do. I'm sure, I'm sure, I, I, I get the feeling that people hit their bottom a few times sometimes if you imagine a, a, a 20 story building and every time you dip down a floor you know and you might live on the 20th floor and you might go down to the 17th floor and think oh no I don't like it I mean, this, is, this is as low as I want to go I've been in the situation where I've sort of been, had intervention into my chaotic drug life on every floor on the way down. And perversely, every time that I kind of thought, OK, well, I've stopped and I'm OK again, I'd, I would sort of relax my guard and think, well, I'm all right for another run. What I never understood was that you never start off again back at the floor 20. You go back to whatever floor you were on before and then continue down. And, I, yeah, I ended up... Uh, to use the building analogy, I ended up in the sub-basement um, beneath the boiler, uh, which was a very... It was not what I planned to do. And actually, I have a very healthy respect. I wouldn't say it was an active fear. I think it's a, a, a deep-held conviction that I have an allergic reaction to mood-altering chemicals, which always leads me back to the same place and beyond. When we talk about... Well, you mentioned the word rock-bottom. Yeah, I, I had numerous crises. And I checked into rehab crisis intervention centres, I think 21 times, and um, I completed eight what they call treatment programmes. There's probably a book in there, actually. Minnesota or Bust, I'd probably call it. Well, Minnesota Model Treatment, which is a sort of the received wisdom of how you, you, you treat drug addiction. Did you have to, I mean, because... I've done that, I did that a lot, and I, I, I thrived. I did really well in, in those environments. Did you... I mean, because the thing that nearly every drug uh, rehabilitation program that I've heard of involves you having to um, accept a higher power. Is that? Did you I, I, I'm a very clever man. I don't know exactly where you're going with that. And a very clever man who was the dr- director of treatment at a, at a treatment centre that I was in. Um, and I slightly resented him because he still owed me 40 quid on a drug deal that I had done for him several years before and paid me back on. Um, so I was not well favoured but he recognised he was dealing most ad, most addicts because of the nature of having that strong a need it, it sort of crushes one's soul and one's spirit and it, for me the drivers were to feed that and to keep hidden so it was it was a horrible sort of juxtaposition you know, I thought it was really cool to take drugs. I thought it was naff to admit that I had to take drugs. Yeah. That, if that, yeah, 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 huge, yeah, yeah. And, and that's the bit that I hid. And that in that hiding, perversely, was, was the belief that I could control, that I could orchestrate my world. And you use the expression higher power. I remember this guy, Paul, his name, um, turning to me in, in a lecture. And talking about this idea that we, we had to have find some spiritual connection outside of ourselves mm-hmm. and he he understood the, the nature of the beast in that I had this sh- sort of chronic low self-esteem 
but this massive ego, the front that that that, that blazoned my trail across the world without sort of seeing the the inner marshmallow, which and, and he turned to me and he said, he said, now Radcliffe, he said, don't you think it's time you sought a power marginally greater than yourself? And I loved him for that because what he it recognised that one, the fear of me rescinding control, if you like, to my life, to something other than myself. Now, that wasn't going to happen. But if it was just marginally greater than myself, then it wasn't so far out of, out of my grasp. And I remember, I remember talking to an alcoholic, an amazing man. I was very, I admired him. I was in one of these sort of places. And he was a prison warder. Now, Usually, most addicts' interaction with the prison warder is, is through the bars of a cell. Yes. So I thought this man showed great courage in going to a place where basically everyone was going to hate him on sight because he represented the enemy. And I remember I was sitting outside, no, not outside, in the hall, just sort of quietly having a fang, thinking about life, and he was having a conversation with his counsellor. And I think it was a Sunday afternoon, and he was called Don, this prison warden and the counsellor said now Don how are you getting on with talking to your higher power and he, Don sort of says well I, uh, oh, fucking, I it's not really my thing I don't know you know what what am I supposed to do well what all you need to do you just need to get on your, your knees and look just every every morning and, and, and every night just get on your knees and pray she said well well give it a go Give it a go, I suppose. Left it at that. And a week later, in my similar sort of Sunday afternoon chill zone, away from people, and the same follow-on of the same conversation. And the guy, so John, how's it going? How's it going on with with uh, with with the prayer? And Don said, "Well, I've got to tell you," he said. Uh, he said, "I feel a right lemon." He said, "I feel really stupid as it goes. I'm, I'm always worried someone's listening." And the counsellor just turned and said, wouldn't you feel more stupid if somebody wasn't? And that really struck me. And I don't know whether there is a God or a higher power or whatever. My part is to make myself open to it. Mm. That's all I need to do. My beliefs are confused, but that's that's not to say they're not they're not convictions I for example would believe that the sun will rise again tomorrow I believe that um, you know, the sun will keep shining for the next however many hundred thousand years and then stop and I can do nothing about the rain and I can do nothing about you know the wind those are powers greater than myself in the same way that heroin in my system beats me Every time. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, that's the reason that I am giving up smoking. One, because I for years resisted it because yeah. I like it, and uh, why would I do that? Is that I don't like being having. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't like. Well, I don't, see, I won't give up with uh, nicotine patches or anything I'm, I have to do a cold turkey yeah. because I, I don't like because what I don't like is being reliant on something right. like I would like I, I don't like the idea of anything having control over me yeah. and so in a way the, the same reason I find it hard to but you're happy for the cigarettes to have the control well no that's why I don't that's why I've given up 
that, that's why I'm giving up. It's an ironic moment to say that because I've had one cigarette, but I haven't. Only had that you just put one out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. But, the, but, the, but but I that's that's what I wanted to get out of my life yeah. the control yeah. of something yeah. else over me because I don't believe in I don't believe in power. I don't like the way that power affects individuals, and yet I'm giving my power to to something else. It was uh, now I'm with you on that, which is funny enough. This, this is totally germane because part of my and it's the ultimate irony. Actually, it's the ultimate sellout, if you like, or betrayal was that my belief in the way that I lived and the drugs that I took was my way of avoiding all that power and control from society. Yeah. And yet what I actually did, and this was the bitter pill I had to swallow when I sort of hit 43 or whatever, was that it didn't make any real difference whether it was teachers, parents, society, the norm controlling me, or the drugs. Not really. I resented the fact that I wasn't free. Yeah. Perversely, the not taking that first one and therefore not having a continued habit gives me the freedom that I always wanted. And it is so odd that in order to find that place, I had to go through a sort of, you know, 25 year purge uh, of a habit to get to a point where I don't, I, can ha I don't need to, you know, I don't need it, I don't want it. Um, I like being me today which is something I, you know, I hated myself. But what I hated about myself was exactly what you're talking about, was the need, the, I don't want anything else to have that control over me. And I found it really difficult to accept that the one thing that I was sort of, like that guy Wolfie in you know, Tooting Popular Front, fighting against, all I did was swap, swap, the, you know, swap the controller. I went from the fat controller to the chilled, you know, powdered controller. Yeah, the control that, that that those substances had over you put you far more at the mercy of state control as well of everything. Yeah. Well, and ultimately, uh, I was put under state control. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, I I I paid quite a price so, for my addictions. I mean, my family, the people that love me most, paid the highest price for yeah. my my addictions. But the price that I then had to pay was incarceration. You know, I've been to jail. Radcliffe's story and the conversation that we had around it is so big that I had to split it into two episodes. So we're coming up to the end of the first of those episodes and I guess we seem to be ending it on a down note. But believe me, in part two, things may get very much worse for Radcliffe in what he tells us about, but they also get better for him. So it's really worth tuning in for part two of this conversation with Radcliffe it's going to be coming out on Friday and this is definitely one of the conversations that I feel blessed to have had and as I said in the conversation I had with Carl James blessed seems a very strange word for me to use but it is the right word so we're going to end this episode by jumping forward to the last moment of the full two-hour conversation that me and Radcliffe had. I mean, it's been a great conversation. I am gonna, I reckon, split it into two parts, which is fine. I've done that before for people much less interesting than you. Ah, uh, um, So that and that's fine. A, a two-part, uh, I think, is entirely appropriate for for so many. I mean, it's such a big story. It needs to be given given proper proper amount of space. 
the last sort of thing I ask people yeah. is there anything that you want to plug or promote I, the, I tell you what I, I, would, I, I would want to promote is two things that I'm now involved with and you know about both of them but if if people want to hear more than the obvious get a little deeper into the psyche of, 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 of the modern human condition and want to find kindred spirits and people in an ever accelerating Facebook, YouTube, <laughs> Snap judgment world, yeah. then Spark London and Stand Up Tragedy oh, nice. are two things that, which I happen to have been very proud to be involved in and feel very privileged to have been asked to be involved with. They're things to look out for. The spoken word is the new rock and roll. <laughs> Hear me now, remember these words. Nice. It's been lovely chatting. It's been brilliant. Thank you. The last thing that I ask people to do is just to say goodbye to the audience. Well, I hope I've said enough because I suspect that some of you will think I never want to have to hear from him again. <laughs> and some of you hopefully will go, hey, wow, you know, a nice story of turnaround and, and, and hope in, in an ugly world. Never say die. And my message to anyone out there listening is I don't care how bad it seems today. The world will turn and you can enjoy the upside. I hope you find it. Thanks for listening. Wow. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> you can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted. So, remember, part two coming out on Friday. This conversation continues. Also, Radcliffe Royds will be performing at Stand Up Tragedy on the 4th of June. He's going to be telling some of the stories that we go through in the second part of the conversation there. Stand Up Tragedy is a night of comedy, music, true stories, fiction and all sorts of interesting spoken word oddities all exploring the idea of tragedy. So get yourself along to the Leicester Square Theatre. The show starts at 8.30. It costs £10 or £8 concessions. Buy your tickets online or by phone at the Leicester Square Theatre box office or come along on the night and buy them on the door. So I hope to see you there. If you come along, you should see me. I'm comparing the evening. Come and introduce yourself to me if we don't already know each other and then you'd be eligible to be on Getting Better Acquainted. Come along to Stand Up Tragedy and meet the people you've just heard.